Hello and welcome to the Hormones in Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Vivian Allred, naturopathic nutritional therapist and hormone enthusiast. If you want to learn how to rebalance your female hormones, regulate your menstrual cycle and reclaim your vitality, then you are in the right place. Each week I will be delving into different conditions such as PCOS, endometriosis, infertility, hypothyroidism, acne and hair loss. Stay tuned for interviews with expert guests, Q&As and solo episodes that are all intended to help you move from hormonal chaos to hormonal harmony. If you'd like to submit a question for me to answer on the podcast, then you can email them to hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. The information shared on this podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not designed to replace the advice of your health practitioner. That said, let's get into today's episode. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today I am recording, I'm about to hit record on Instagram doing a Q&A as unfortunately I had a podcast guest scheduled for, to, for today but they cancelled last minute so I had to come up with an idea and I thought a Q&A is always a good idea, you've always got questions that you want me to answer. So yeah, I'm going to hit record now, let's get straight into the episode. Hello, hello, it has been a while since I've done an Instagram live this feels a little bit weird. I went through a stage, I don't know if it was last year, maybe the year before, I was doing a lot of them like week after week and I was getting a ton of questions and I actually converted them into podcast episodes. So if you haven't listened to them, I've got plenty of Q&As and I'm recently um, recorded an Instagram, uh, not an Instagram, a podcast listener question as well, which I first started off doing with my podcast a couple of years ago whenever I started it. And it would be listener questions that they sent in. So I've also done one of them. I don't know if it's going to be released before or after this podcast that I'm recording today. But if you want to ask questions today, please go ahead. Hi, Tasmin. I got your question via DM. I'm going to answer that as well. But it will be recorded on the podcast. So if you're not able to stick around, then just tune in when the podcast gets released on Monday. But I have questions that have come through on the question box that I uploaded and also via DM and on Facebook as well. So I will be covering a ton of different things today. I've got some questions on skin and detox, parasites, intermittent fasting, my thoughts on the pro-metabolic way of eating, eczema, blurry eyes, a ton of different ones. But if you have any that you're on live and you want to ask, then please do. I've got about maybe 30 to 60 minutes. We'll see how many questions I get through definitely have to be done by six o'clock so in 55 minutes and I think it cuts me off at that point anyway but we will see or however long it takes for my phone battery to run out because I forgot to record it I forgot to charge my phone up prior so if my phone cuts out I will hopefully be given a warning and hopefully it will save but yeah let's get started with some questions so um, I will answer Tasman's question while she's on the call now and um, why she has to leave a little bit early. So she was asking, why do people get vulvodynia or interstitial cystitis? So they are separate conditions. They have some similar crossovers. So I will cover both of them. So vulvodynia is basically a vaginal pain and it can be triggered by certain things like sex, food. It can be completely random. It can be intermittent. So it flows up every now and again, or it can be chronic and I've never dealt with it personally, but I've heard it's pretty um, painful and it can affect your quality of life, obviously. I can only imagine. So I did a recent podcast episode, if you haven't already listened to that, Tasmin, on vaginal health. I cover all sorts of things on there, like 
yeast infections, STIs, HPV, but vulvodynia was one of the conditions that I mentioned in there. And it's very much internal and emotional energetic, like a lot of conditions are and symptoms are, um, honestly. Even as something as minor as a headache could be due to some type of internal imbalance, but also some sort of emotional, energetic, and as simple as stress, but as some, something as more complex as trauma. With vulvodynia, there is very much like a psycho um, sexual type issue. And some people, they do notice it's triggered by sex or it's worsened by sex. And it can be due to a number of like limiting beliefs or bad experiences someone's had um, in terms of rape or just um, they had a, a bad experience with a partner in, in the past and that's just triggered them to have this vaginal pain. Or it could be internal factors such as um, a lot of gut imbalances, like bacterial overgrowth in particular, the nervous system just being on overdrive, so it's just reacting to everything. And stress can be a number of different things with that um, emotional side of things. It can be work-related stress. It could be trauma from another non-sexual related issue that just means that your nervous system is on overdrive and it's just reacting to the smallest trigger. And um, if someone has any inflammatory pelvic conditions or vaginal dryness, um, then that might be a trigger as well, because if it's uncomfortable or non-enjoyable to, to have sex, then their body tenses up and they might, they might just kind of have created a habit in the brain, not to say that it's all in your head, but the, the brain kind of wires to be reactive and it's kind of uncontrollable. And then with interstitial cystitis, similar things um, could be emotional related. There's no like definite psychosexual connection with that one, but definitely any type of stress in the, in the system. But um, I would say that, that it's more physiological with interstitial cystitis. There's a big link between mast cell related issues. So histamine type conditions. Um, and I at one point experienced a lot of bladder issues and even incontinence when I was maybe 20 years old, not knowing that at the time I was living in mold and I had a lot of histamine intolerance. I was eating a ton of high histamine foods and it would mean that I'd be fine. And then all of a sudden my bladder would feel like it was just going to explode. I needed the bathroom that much and I would couldn't hold myself. I would run to go to the bathroom and it would just start leaking out, which hopefully isn't TMI. I'm sure you all are here to, to learn a little bit more about health, but that is a condition that you hear about quite a lot. You don't have to be in your 50s and postmenopausal to experience bladder incontinence. It's a real problem. I even went to my doctors regarding it because I was thinking this isn't normal. I've not always struggled with it. Why do I have this? And they just told me to do more Kegel exercises, which is crazy. And the root cause for me was the mold exposure or the mast cell activation syndrome that occurred as a result. And food sensitivities can overlap as well. They can be known triggers for IC, interstitial cystitis, rather than me just saying the full name all the time. So people notice um, histamine can be a reaction. So foods like fermented foods, alcohol, pickled foods, leftovers might be a trigger. Some people notice other food compounds like oxalates or nightshades. So lakes can be a factor as well. So if you keep a food journal, that might be able to see, you might be able to see some patterns with that because everyone's individual but still the root cause even if it does turn out to be food sensitivity driven that's not a root cause you need to look a little bit deeper so it comes back to gut health leaky gut like why do you have leaky gut in the first place can be as again minor as 
you're, you've just taken too many antibiotics and you need some probiotics for a while, or you're eating gluten and you're sensitive to that, or it could be as extreme as something like mold exposure that's causing ongoing leaky gut or Lyme disease in some cases. So both of these are symptoms, but you need to look deeper as to why you have them in the first place. And hormones can definitely come into this as well. If you've got low hormone levels, particularly low estrogen, this can cause the uh, vaginal and the bladder lining to be more irritated and therefore more at risk of infections and things like that. So Tasmin has just commented, I have mass flexivation and my doctor said the same thing, just hold my bladder. Easier said than done. And I feel like I have the same severe urgency needing to go to the toilet. So I can totally relate, Tasmin. I know how frustrating it is, especially when you're young and you feel like you're an old woman. But it is a symptom and I'm completely free of it now. I've not had that in over a year since I moved out of the mold. But even when I was still living there with the type of things that I was doing just to help my immune system and to manage the mold exposure that I knew that I had but I couldn't get out of right away, I was able to reduce at least the severity. And a low histamine diet for me did help. I'm not going to lie. There's a time and a place for a bit of a food elimination and just be mindful of not overdoing it because they are some of the healthiest foods out there. And I have um, a few blog posts and podcast episodes on histamine. So you can message me if you can't find them. Mariah has just joined. She's asking chronic migraines and insomnia, how to fix this. So with migraines, there are a few um, root causes to this as well. And um, just physical tension in the body can be linked to mineral imbalances. So I'm a big fan of mineral testing with HGMA, her tissue mineral analysis, which is a her sample. Something as little as a magnesium deficiency can honestly cause migraines. I've seen it time and time again. Just fixing that with a high strength supplement for a period of time helps. But if you're constantly needing magnesium, it could be that your body is stressed out. And this could be for a number of different reasons. It could be parasites and bacterial overgrowths are kind of stealing your minerals. It could be that you're not sleeping enough. Uh, it could be that there's some physical tension going on that you need. You're just burning through your magnesium stores rapidly. Other nutrients like CoQ10 can be associated with migraines, as can hormonal imbalances. That histamine piece that I just mentioned as well is a big one, especially if you've noticed certain foods trigger it like alcohol, chocolate, um, and yeah, I've mentioned alcohol. Or if it's hormonal, if you're getting hormonal headaches or migraines around ovulation or the week before your period, that could be linked to histamine as well. Because at times when your estrogen or your estrogen spikes, so does your histamine. And that's where some of these headaches can come from. And the root causes of the histamine problem, if that turns out to be a factor, is very much gut-based. So it could be some sort of bacterial overgrowth in the gut and they produce histamine. It could be a deficiency of other nutrients like copper or vitamin C. They're needed to break down the histamine in the body. So if you don't have them, you automatically have uh, excess it could be that you have low progesterone levels um, because of, again, chronic stress, overexercise, not eating enough food, and therefore you have this relative estrogen dominance. Progesterone is very much a brain calming and anti-inflammatory hormone. So a lot of people with migraines have low progesterone. Same with insomnia. If you have both of those conditions, it could be due to a low progesterone state, especially if you notice that it gets worse in the second half of the cycle. But insomnia alone can be due to just a poor sleep hygiene routine. If you're not giving yourself time to wind down before bed, avoiding blue light exposure from devices. You have to think of children, like how, how they 
have to go through a proper evening routine. We have to do the same kind of thing for ourselves. And if you stay up late with a kid on an iPad, playing games and very mentally stimulating TV programs, they're going to find it hard to get to sleep. So we forget and overlook this really basic thing when we're adults. Um, insomnia. What else? I've seen mold exposure, chronic mold exposure, especially if it's in the bedroom, be a factor. Chronic parasite infections, especially if the insomnia or sleep issues get worse around the full moon. So maybe that's worth tracking, not just the hormonal fluctuations, but also the moon cycles. Do your symptoms get worse in there as well? And depending on what the causes are, because there's usually more than one, the protocol and the solution would, um, you would have to find what's going on first to find the solution. Just going to go through a couple of questions off my list here. So Georgie said, how many times a day is too much to have meat with a meal? Good quality, which I like to see. I personally think it's fine to have meat every single meal of the day. There's some exceptions. If someone has um, like histamine intolerance, sometimes you need to be mindful of the amount of meat that you're doing or the types and if it's fresh versus leftover. But I think animal protein is the, the top recommendation to have at each meal as opposed to beans and grains and nuts and seeds and legumes, those types of plant-based proteins. Our body recognizes it so much better. And if you're having the better quality stuff, the negative health associations um, that are put on to meat are, aren't really true. So the, them saying that it causes cancer, that's really associated with just processed meat or very poor quality factory farm meat, not grass-fed beef that's grown, that's like um, in the farm just down the road local is really important as well but yeah georgia i don't think there's too many too much animal protein you can have in your case because i know this person anyway so i i think she's fine with it but in some cases people don't feel good eating meat but it's not the meat that's the problem it's the digestion that's the problem if you've got really low stomach acid and a lot of bacterial overgrowths and infections you might not do well with a lot of animal protein whilst you're trying to heal but long-term animal protein is really important just to give you all of the nutrients that you need in a very bioavailable form. I have a question here on live from Alice. She says, can you take para one on its own for parasites if you're sensitive to para two? I got bad herxing or detox reactions from taking them. So the fact, whenever someone reacts badly to a parasite product, unless they have an obvious allergy and it's quite a severe reaction, or if you're very sick, it's probably that you're, you're um, just, you're killing off the parasites and it's, it's causing some shift in the body. So it can be problematic. It can cause some symptoms. And sometimes you kind of have to push through a little bit. It might be that you need to get used to the power of one for longer. And if you're not already taking the binder, then you need to be doing that as well. Or you need to look into your liver and um, bowel detox because if you haven't worked on drainage and detox first with making sure that you go into the bathroom every single day at least once ideally two to three during a parasite cleanse or if you've never done any work on your liver detox pathways and kind of getting those working with things like castor oil packs and coffee enemas then it could be that when you're taking para 2 you're killing off too many bugs at one time and that's overwhelming the detox pathways and that's why you're getting the bad detox reactions so if you're on the cell core products, there's the binder, the biotoxin binder and Tudka can be good, but speak to your practitioner and make sure that that's a good fit. But usually 
um, starting them off before the power two resolves any bad reactions that you're getting. Libby is asking, please, can you give me some top tips for moving out the mold and moving into a mold free place? Yeah, I got your message. I got your um, question as well, Libby, on the question box. I was going to answer that next. So I'm happy that you identified mold as a problem. Honestly, it's a huge issue and it's very overlooked. So the fact that you're even knowledgeable about this is amazing. And I would advise you not to get too stressed about about the whole situation because mold PTSD is real. And however, the stress surrounding mold can be just as bad, if not more harmful than mold itself, because the fear that comes along with it and the anxiety and the constant stress. Um, I mean, I was like a, a psychopath at one point, just waking up in the middle of the night, worrying if something had been cross-contaminated, but I was doing it out of a place of, I really want to get better. And I know that this is the root cause of pretty much every single symptom that I had. So I just wanted to do the best I can. But looking back, I was just causing too much stress and pressure on myself. If you haven't already listened to episode, I think it's 69 and 70 or 70, I think 79 and 80 actually of my podcast. That was my whole personal experience on moving safely and the things that I did. And I'd done tons of research for months and months on what to do and the best way to do it. Because I, after finding out that I had mold, had to live in that same house for another six months before my new place was ready. So I had a lot of time to dive into the research and make sure I was doing, I had a lot of um, procedures in place. But my top tips would be, um, if you can, and it depends on the situation, how sick you are, your budget, and the type of mold and the type of exposure, the amount that you had. Because in some cases, it really is best to start fresh. If you're severely ill and your life is on the line, then I might, I would personally just start fresh to reduce any risk of cross-contamination. However, in my case, even though I was very sick, I wasn't at the point where I was like bedbound or anything like that. So I slowly took things from, it was my parents' house, the, the moldy house, and slowly took things across month by month. I started off with like a bag of clothes that would last me a week and I washed them three times to talk through the washing process on the episode as well I think that's number 80 but I washed them three times I um, air dried them I I bought a new I was already going to get new furniture anyway because it was my first home on my own um, but I would recommend if you can repurchase something like a mattress a sofa anything porous that's hard to clean you can clean clothes and and do that successfully with the right products. And I'm proof that that can happen. But with things like coaches and sofas and furniture, it's best to be safe than sorry. And they're very difficult to clean. So I would recommend if you can afford it, buying fresh or literally just getting a cheap, a cheap one for the meantime, just to get you by and saving up for something else down the line. I would also say... Um, making sure with things like books and photo albums you can get them on like a digital copy so with books you can get the kindle version and really use this as a time to purge what isn't needed in life i was quite a i was a bit of a hoarder at the time especially with things like my clothes and things from like school and college and books i just had a shelf a cupboard full of books actually that i just had to purge and sell and start start again and it helped me live a bit of a minimalist life for a while which is quite enjoyable I learned a lot of lessons not to become attached to 
personal belongings as much anymore. So top tips would be um, if you can slowly bring things over, don't just bring your whole entire house into a new place. Purchase fresh things if you can. Clean your clothes thoroughly and try not to stress about the whole situation too much. And if you find yourself being very reactive and triggered, look into DNRS, brain rewiring, as that can help you reframe your thoughts around mold to see it as not so much of a threat anymore. Because anytime I would smell mold or I would see mold, even if it was on TV, I would get really triggered instantly. And that's not healthy. And ideally, long term, we should be able to be exposed to some levels of mold because it is normal to some degree, but probably not the levels that you were living at previously. And yeah, just give your body grace when moving and it will naturally start to detox anyway within a few days if you're not breathing in that air anymore. So you don't need to go too strongly with any detox protocols because again, that's something else that I had to learn the hard way by pushing myself too much. But I think the episodes that I mentioned would help you a little bit more, Libby. Okay, so next question is from Megan. This was pre-submitted and she's asking the best ways to get rid of H. pylori. For those who don't know, H. pylori is a bacteria that lives in the stomach and it's a corkscrew shape and it kind of burrows its way deep into the stomach lining. And the way that it survives is in an alkaline environment. So its job is to shut off stomach acid production and it weakens your stomach acid. So rather than it being a pH of, I think, between one and two, it becomes a lot weaker, a lot more alkaline, somewhat like apple cider vinegar. So you can imagine how that affects your digestion. It sets you up to be more susceptible to parasites and other bacterial overgrowths like SIBO, uh, food sensitivities, you're not breaking your food down properly, nutrient deficiencies, because you're not absorbing your nutrients from your food, you could be eating the best diet. Symptoms can be heartburn, reflux, stomach pain, burping. They're the most common ones. But you might be completely symptom-free digestively, but other symptoms of H. pylori can be fatigue, skin rashes, histamine issues, headaches. There's a ton of them. And testing while we're on the subject of H. pylori. I do run GI map stool tests sometimes, not always. The conventional tests or doctors for H. pylori aren't too accurate. So there's blood tests, a breath test, and a stool test. But I prefer to use PCR testing, which doesn't just rely on a lab technician searching for H. pylori or any bacteria under a microscope. It's looking at DNA fragments. So if they see even just the smallest presence of a piece of DNA from H. pylori, they know that it's there and therefore you get a positive on the test. But sometimes, especially if it's been there for quite a while or if there's other infections in the gut, on the first couple of tests, especially on something like a GI map stool test, it might be negative. That happened to me. My H. pylori was negative for, I think, seven years, even though I had a ton of the symptoms, but it kept going back negative. And the more work that I do on clearing parasites and uh, sebum, bacterial overgrowth and improving my digestion, eventually the H. pylori showed up. And it, it's not that I'd just become exposed to it. It's that it'd been there the whole time. It had just been walled off from detection. So it would um, be covered by a layer of something called biofilm or it would just be deep into the, the lining of the gut. So I brought it to the surface with some of the things that I was doing. And then treatment-wise, there's a few different options. Sometimes people go through the conventional treatment, which is called triple therapy, because that is two antibiotics combined with a proton pump inhibitor, PPI, stomach acid blocker. 
but that obviously comes with risks to the rest of your gut microbiome because you're killing off good and bad bacteria that allows for yeast to proliferate afterwards. So if someone wants to go that route, it is effective, but it might run into issues and always retest after doing any treatment because some people might feel better for a period of time or just assume that it's gone because they've done treatment, but then six months later, they're back in the same place with the same symptoms, if not worse, because it never actually cleared in the first place. But I've seen herbal protocols to be just as, if not more effective with less side effects as well. So these can include things like mastic gum, um, DGL, licorice just to help with the inflammation, high dose curcumin, sulforaphane. Matulity is pretty effective, but it's quite expensive. So for a two week treatment, I think this is a, like a herbal tea blend that you can get online. The website looks a little bit sketchy, a little bit dodgy. I'm not going to lie. Um, it's just like a basic PayPal link, but it's legit. I use it all the time with clients, but it's probably, I think like between, I can't think off the top of my head, maybe a hundred to 200 pound for that treatment. But that said, the amount that people would spend otherwise on a several months of mastic gum and some of these other things, it might work. And it's, it's got a money back guarantee. So if you do a test, you have H pylori, you do the treatment with maturity retest, and it's still there. It's not cleared. Potentially I've never had someone have to do it because it has worked. You get a money back, you get your money back for it anyway. And then personally, I use um, a product called Toxaprevent. I've been using this more over the past year. I, I used to use Toxaprevent all the time because it was a common brand that um, would lecture. And I've actually done a, a collaboration and event with them one time a few years ago. They do these sachets. I can't pronounce the name. It's like a clay or a binder that's very good at binding to an ammonia and histamine in the system, things like heavy metals and aluminium. But they have a specific H. pylori protocol. I'm sure that you can find it online, but it's using the MediPlus sachets. And it's like a little fasting protocol in the morning. So you would fast for several hours. You would take several of the sachets and um, eating just a small amount of carbohydrates every few hours. You take one of the probiotics at the same time. Do that for five days. It's like a five-day little cleanse. On the rest of the days in the afternoon and evenings, you would have more of a vegetarian-style diet because the aim is to keep your stomach acid low during that time just to make sure that the infection clears as quickly as possible but that has been pretty good at um, eliminating h pylori in my experience um, i'm not sure if the products are available worldwide but you can order from the company the company is new novu or nuvo health if you search tox to prevent you should be able to find it and you can get it to places like the us definitely and in the uk quite readily so that is worth a try do you love coffee, but have been told it's bad and needs to be avoided if you're struggling with hormone imbalances like acne, PMS, and period problems? Honestly, most coffee out there should be avoided because the majority are contaminated with things like mold and pesticides, which can drive inflammation and those feelings like anxiousness and jitteriness after drinking. But what if I told you there was a coffee option that tastes great, is organic and mold free, and also provides healing properties from reishi mushroom spores. Enter Organo King Coffee, my latest obsession. I didn't drink it for years because it would always wreck my sleep and leave me feeling like an anxious mess. But King Coffee does the exact opposite. Don't worry, it's not one of those fake coffee alternatives made from herbs. And if you've tried other mushroom coffee brands out there, 
I promise this one actually tastes good and is way better and provides so many more health benefits. If you haven't already heard of the benefits of reishi mushroom or Ganoderma, then let me give you a quick overview. It's known as the king of medicinal mushroom family due to its superpowers such as supporting healthy immune balance and being an adrenal adaptogen. This means if your immune system's overactive due to autoimmunity, or suppressed because of things like chronic infections, and you're not really sure if your cortisol levels are high or low, the ratio can help to balance things out and it promotes homeostasis within the body. It's also antibacterial, antiviral, antifungal, anti-inflammatory, pretty much everything that we want from a product. Because of its potency, I'd recommend starting slowly if you're someone who's struggling with more complex chronic health issues or is sensitive. If you're thinking, why can't I just take a reishi mushroom supplement? Good question. Organo use a patented process to gently crack the inner and outer shell, offering 99% bioavailability of the reishi mushroom spores. I also explain this as being like the differences with probiotics, the regular lactobacillus, bifidobacterium options that we can all buy readily in health food shops have some benefit, but nowhere near as much as the spore-based probiotics that I use all the time with clients. Wanting to give Organo King Coffee a try for yourself? Visit vivanaturalhealth.myorganogold.com. This will all be spelled out and linked in the episode show notes and also my bio link on Instagram. I really hope you love it as much as I do, but now let's get back to the show. Beth asked, what are the top signs of your body being healthy or in sync? This is a good question because a lot of people these days are focusing on the symptoms and not actually what it looks like to be healthy. It isn't possible to be fully perfectly healthy all the time. And that shouldn't be something that you're striving for because it's not realistic. And that could actually cause you to, again, run into issues because you're pressuring yourself too much. It can sometimes feel like you're playing whack-a-mole with your health. You get rid of one issue and then another one pops up. But because of the toxic world that we're living in these days, we're just constantly fighting against environmental pollution and poor quality foods. The soil alone is way more deficient than it was even 50 years ago. So we have to work even harder to get things like our vitamin C levels to where they need to be. And our body's just constantly stressed because of things like EMFs, electromagnetic frequencies and pollution and the water quality is poorer. So we have a lot to to deal with these days. But top signs of health, let's say for a woman, would be um, a regular healthy menstrual cycle. So she's ovulating, even if she doesn't want kids now or ever. Ovulation is a sign of health. And it's also a creator of health because of the progesterone that you produce during that time. So let's say she ovulates somewhere around day 10 to 17. That's like an average for most people. Her cycle is between, let's say, 27 and 35 days. And her bleed isn't too bad. She doesn't have to have any time off work. It's just like another regular day. Energy might be a little bit lower than usual, but she doesn't have to take painkillers. Her bleed isn't too heavy. She's not bleeding through her clothes or her underwear. There aren't any blood clots or anything. It's a nice, vibrant, healthy red color. She doesn't have many PMS symptoms leading up to the bleed. The bleed lasts about five, uh, three to seven days. And yeah, no breast tenderness. Mood is pretty stable. It's natural to be a little bit more introverted and tired around that time, but nothing too extreme. Clear skin is always a good sign of health. The odd breakout here and there could be something that you like not wash your face well enough the night before. So you can't be too strict on all of these things, but 
clear skin is a, a nice form, no real strong body odor, um, healthy weights, don't really have to stress about your weight too much. It's just stable, a good, healthy, strong appetite, good, stable energy throughout the day. You're not having slumps of energy or like bursts of energy after eating. After eating, it should be just neutral. You shouldn't feel way more energized or absolutely tired and bloated afterwards. Digestion should be going to the bathroom at least once, ideally two to three times a day, a good amount, easy to pass, no bloating really, anything like that. They would be my top signs. See if there's any more questions on here. So a question here from Rose Moon Twin. How is it possible to have both PCOS and endo when they are caused by the opposite hormone issues? It's hard to know how to tackle this issue when one approach could worsen the other. I'm not sure what you mean they have opposite hormonal issues because I don't think they do. They're both a state of um, low progesterone, I'd say. And they're both inflammatory conditions that involve the gut and immune system. So PCOS tends to have high um, androgen levels. That's like the classic, the classic um, differentiator, high testosterone or androstenedione or DHEAS. There's some common examples. And low progesterone is extremely common. It's a state of chronic anovulation. So not ovulating at all or delayed ovulation. Estrogen can be high, normal or low. That can really fluctuate depending on the person. Cortisol levels can be high or low, depending on the person. Thyroid tends to be sluggish with PCOS, underactive as opposed to underactive. Endometriosis is a state of estrogen dominance. So the estrogen might be very high for someone who's overweight. The body fat produces more um, estrogen or estrogen. Um, birth control usage, synthetic hormone usage, um, they might have very high levels of estrogen or they might have normal levels of estrogen but it's just a, a more harmful, bad type when they're detoxing it out of the system. So on a lab test, a blood test, or um, a regular urine test, it might show normal, but when they're trying to excrete it out, either it's not leaving the body, it's being recirculated back in, or it's a negative type that can cause proliferation in the system. But compared to progesterone, estrogen is usually higher than the progesterone that causes a state of estrogen dominance. Same with Thyroid tends to be more sluggish. So that's a commonality that they both have. Commonalities that they both tend to have lower progesterone levels um, and cortisol levels can be high or low either. They both are very much linked to gut health. So with endometriosis, there is a link between high levels of LPS, um, these lipopolysaccharides or endotoxin that are the byproducts from bad bacteria in the gut. PCOS can have the same. There's usually high levels of LPS or poor diversity of the gut. And that's common with metabolic type issues as well, including diabetes, metabolic syndrome. So if you want to clarify um, with this listener what she means by different hormone imbalances, because I don't actually agree with that. And they very commonly go together. And I recently did a webinar. I don't know if it's still available from my old college that I studied at CNM. But they did a, they asked me to do a webinar, so I covered both of them. And the good thing is that a lot of recommendations overlap. Like the things that I talk about all the time, getting good quality sleep, balancing your blood sugar, eating nutrient-dense food, managing your stress as much as possible, working on your gut health, reducing environmental toxins help regardless of what condition you're dealing with. 
but particularly hormonal conditions as well. It's just about getting the body healthy and removing the causes and stresses to the body. Rachel is asking advice around eczema and the root causes. Any skin issue is very much tied to gut issues. So healthy gut equals a healthy skin. It's like the magic mirror into the digestive tract. So I would start there. And that could be, again, parasite infections I see commonly causing acne or psoriasis or eczema. It can be SIBO, yeast overgrowth can be common with eczema, especially if it's more like a separate dermatitis type eczema, which can affect the scalp and sometimes the face, and it's more oily, a more oily type. There is a connection between food allergies and food intolerances, common ones that are usually picked up by conventional doctors with skin testing or blood testing would be gluten, dairy, eggs, corn, soy, and sometimes um, seafood or nightshades can be a trigger. Histamines can be a trigger. So again, keeping a food journal, but not narrowing too deeply into the food intolerances because they're more of a symptom. My friend Jennifer Fugo has a lot of information on eczema. That's her area of expertise. She has the Healthy Skin Show and talks all the time about root causes and things like that. It's very much due to a impaired skin barrier. So it might be something topically that you're doing or not doing to the body. But in my experience, topical things are only part of the puzzle. There's often these internal factors as well. Internal wise, um, hormonal fluctuations, again, a low thyroid can often trigger or drive eczema. And liver detox pathways can often be sluggish as well. So things like the methylation pathways or sulfation pathways can often be sluggish. And with that, it's either that there's not enough nutrients coming in to fuel or to get the liver detox pathways moving. It needs a ton of nutrients like B vitamins, selenium and zinc and magnesium to actually work. So if you have a deficiency, then that could be a cause of why your liver is sluggish. Or there's usually too much coming in, too much for the liver to do. So that might be medication use, alcohol intake, environmental toxins, drug use, cigarette smoking. Stress can slow down the liver. Inflammation can slow down the liver because when you're inflamed, your detox is kind of turned off. So they would be my top recommendations for eczema. And topically, I have um, two practitioner friends who I would highly recommend. My friend Sarah Sumik from Healthy Skin Glows and my other friend Cheryl Woodman from Honesty for Skin. They're like the topical skin experts, so I'm constantly referring out to them, but it's often a damaged skin barrier that is um, perpetuating the issue, and um, creams containing things like ceramides can really help, and it's all about hydrating the skin, but you can't just slap on a ton of moisturizer if you have a bacterial overgrowth in the gut because it's not going to work. You need to do both simultaneously. Um, let's have a look on here. More questions. So Rachel, I have most PCOS symptoms under control except hirsutism. Any tips other than the usual ones? So hirsutism, for those who don't know, is abnormal and male patterned facial hair growth or body hair growth in women. So usually it affects the upper lip, the kind of beard area that a man would have, um, the nipples, down the chest, the kind of um, under the navel and the pubic area and onto the legs can be most affected. And this can be a very stubborn symptom. I had a similar experience where all of the other symptoms cleared up, but acne and hirsutism were like the most stubborn. And 
I'll just cover some of the most common causes because I don't know what you have already researched and what you know about. But with PCOS, a big thing is like metabolic dysfunction. So um, blood sugar fluctuations. So making sure you're eating enough protein, making sure you'll be mindful of your carbohydrate types and quantities, making sure that your muscle mass um, is really healthy because that helps with stabilizing things making sure that your minerals are balanced. I would recommend doing HTMA, her mineral, her tissue mineral analysis testing, because this is a test that's often overlooked. It's one of the, the cheapest tests out there. Um, but if you're open to cutting some of your hair off the head, sometimes with PCOS, there's been hair loss. So people aren't wanting to do that. But um, there's people with like chronic zinc deficiencies that they might be taking a, a general standard dose of, if you're rock bottom deficient, you might need a quite high dose for a period of time. Or with PCOS, there's sometimes what's known as a calcium shell. So the calcium's building up and that's slowing down the, uh, the metabolism. And if that's the case, if the thyroid's been affected, then the, um, the PCOS and the sex hormones are never going to be balanced. So um, looking into thyroid T3 levels and uh, antibody levels, because sometimes they can mimic PCOS symptoms. Looking into... Um, yeah, other minerals like potassium, you need that in order to use glucose more effectively. So the HGMA might be a good option for you. Um, if you haven't done things like a comprehensive gut protocol and parasite cleansing, I've seen that to be amazing for PCOS symptoms. I can't say hirsutism specifically. Um, it just helps generally with PCOS symptoms because if you have these chronic gut infections, your liver is going to be more sluggish and you're going to be more inflamed and your metabolism is going to be kind of stressed out and inflamed as well and slowed down. So parasite cleansing is a big one, but also look into environmental toxins. I think that might be something that you've overlooked and commonly is. Uh, for me, in my personal experience might not be the case for you, but it's worth looking into. Mold exposure was actually the cause of my PCOS. I, I can say it because I, I know that it's true and it's not the only thing that's contributed, but the root factor was probably mold because mold drives all of the root causes of PCOS. It makes you more insulin resistant. It makes you more inflamed and it stresses the body. Those are the three things that cause or contribute to PCOS. And it stopped me ovulating and it stopped me producing progesterone. It might not be doing that fully for you, but it could just be lowering the progesterone. It could be lowering your thyroid slightly and causing more inflammation and more stress in the body. So mold exposure or heavy metals, from um or environmental toxins from things like heavy metals uh, mercury exposure can affect the thyroid and therefore your pcos and androgen levels um so yeah do some further investigation there's always a cause and i truly believe that you can fix pretty much any symptom if you dig a little bit deeper and don't give up next question is did you have mold throughout the whole living area or just in one place I don't know because we never fully investigated. My parents are unfortunately still living in that same home and they say that they've done some work and remediation because at first they didn't believe me. Secondly, they were a little bit frustrated because they think I just blame everything on them. But um, yeah, they've had new floorings in. They've had someone in and said there was a little bit of damp because the air circulation was poor um, and there was a little bit of leakage coming in from the outdoors because it's on the end like an end terrace but I'm pretty sure it was mainly the crawl space under the house 
But if that's the case, then the mycotoxins are just going to affect the whole place. Um, and it, it doesn't just stay in one area. So if it's just in the bedroom or the bathroom, it doesn't just mean that it's there. It, every time you open the door or if you've got a, a system in, it will just kind of flow throughout the house as well. But I'm pretty sure it was under the house for me. And then that led to overgrowth in other places. But the root problem was under the floor and maybe um, in the living room and in the washroom, like the laundry room, because they were um, probably exposed to some sort of water, water leak. And she's saying, I'm just trying to work out if you need to do all of this or if, it, if it's just in one room. It's always best to be safe than sorry because of that thing that I just mentioned that it can spread. Mycotoxins are invisible and they can travel. Mold's job, mold's mission is to spread. That's why on a piece of bread, you see like the piece of mold and it creates this kind of circle around it. It's creating like a protective layer around it so that it's, it's very dominant. And it doesn't like other organisms taking over. But if you're concerned or you don't know then it would recommend testing different rooms and um, you could do like a mold plate testing or an ermi whichever option is going to be best and depending on your budget as well tasmin followed up with a question is it normal to have low estrogen if you're 26 no definitely not that shouldn't be a problem until you're menopausal honestly so look deeper into that how long does one have to be exposed to mold to concern to be concerned about effects? That's a little bit different as well, depending on your toxic bucket just overall. If you are living perfectly, you don't have any stress, you don't have any metal fillings in your mouth, you've never had food poisoning, so the risk of parasites is lower, you've never taken any medication and your diet's been pristine since birth, then you might be able to live with mold, even if you're genetically susceptible, your whole life and just never be affected because that's there's not much filling up your toxic bucket overall. Whereas if you've got a ton of other things going on beforehand, that's what happened with me. It wasn't just the mold and that triggered it. There was other things like the fact that I was on the pill, the fact that I had food poisoning, I was bitten by a tick or a mosquito and contracted Lyme disease. I had a poor diet. So that means that the mold was then the thing that broke the calls back and the, the main thing that was overflowing the toxic bucket. But if the mold is, if you're living in a place and it's just like absolutely infested with mold and it's black mold, it's the worst type and you can visibly see it, then someone might get sick within days. Whereas if it's invisible, if it's hidden, if it's not too bad and it's a, less a lesser harmful type of mold, then it might be years it's different for everyone it depends on your how healthy you are in general next question um i took the dutch test a day too late a day too late to my period i took it on day 23 rather than 22 will this cause a big difference in the results and um, probably not i mean if it's just a day apart than when you wanted to do it um, the reason that you do it in that time period, it's five to seven days after ovulation or like five to seven days before your period shoot. That's the luteal phase and it's to catch the progesterone spike that you would get. So if you were to test like the day before your period started, it could be that progesterone is rock bottom because it's about to drop and that triggers your period. But if it was like a day just in that luteal phase, that, that time where progesterone is probably the highest, um, it might be a little bit lower than what it would have been the day before but you're catching it at its peak anyway 
So I personally don't think, and that's the only one that it would really affect. Um, your estrogen really wouldn't change much within one day during that time. You're welcome, Alice. She said, thanks for answering my last question. Is there anything that I would do after having a stomach bug? I would, I would keep my diet very basic and bland. I wouldn't do the whole, is it brat, bananas, rice, apples, and toast, because I, I was sensitive to gluten. So that's not a good recommendation for most people, but I would act like my, my gut is like a newborn baby. So everything like pure, pureed, mushed, slow cook soups, smoothies, um, no cold foods, no raw foods, lots of herbal teas. Um, I would uh, really increase my probiotic intake and my digestive enzyme intake. I'd probably do some gut healing support like colostrum or immunoglobulin supplementation. Um, I might do, yeah, the probiotic that I like is Megaspore probiotic. I even use that during a food stomach bug or food poisoning and go quite high with that. The, the standard dose is two capsules a day. I've been up to like eight to 10 capsules a day in divided doses just to help nip the infection in the bug. And it really does help. And yeah, lots of herbal teas. Ginger is a really good one. It's anti-inflammatory, soothing, and just give yourself time to rest and repair and sleep a lot. And if you can do a little bit of fasting, that could be beneficial. It depends on how sick you've been. If you've not been eating well for a week or two, then you're probably going into a more depleted state. So if you can fast without getting really tired or run down, then you can do that as well because your gut can only really heal on an empty stomach. And other than that, you're going to be digesting your food and it's hard for the stomach lining to heal. But don't go crazy with the fasting because then if you fast too much, it's a little bit of stress on the body and then stress will stop you from repairing properly. Tasmin, do you ovulate from a different ovary each cycle? Um, it depends, like some people do, and some people have like a, a, prefer, a preferred ovary. And then every six months, they ovulate from the evil, I'm doing quotes, evil ovary, and they have a terrible cycle. So it depends, some people rotate back and forth. Some people, it's one preferred, um, one preferred one, then every now and again, they have one from the other ovary. So it's not, it's not a back and forth thing for everyone. It just depends. What is the cause of breakouts now? Do you mean acne breakouts? So this can be for um, reasons like food sensitivities. Um, it could be the stuff that you're putting on your skin or not putting on your skin. It could be that you have hormonal imbalances. It could be that you have an infection in the gut. It could be that you're deficient in certain nutrients. There's tons of root causes to acne. I have a acne root cause guide on my website. So you can have a look at that in the link in my bio here on my profile. And that one goes through the, the most common acne root causes. So you should find that very helpful. I'm going to stay on for less than 10 minutes. So if there's anyone on live wants to ask, I've gone through the ones that are have been written on here. Um, I will work my way through some of these additional ones on my list. But yeah, 10 minutes. And then if you want to watch the replay, that will be on my podcast. Laura is asking, how long can it take to clear parasite infections? Average, I'd say, is three months. I usually don't do it less than that. So if someone has mild digestive issues, mild skin issues, and isn't too sick, I say three months is a standard. 
standard recommendation. And because of the life cycles, you have to think of that. It's not just um, the, the parasites or the worms themselves. It's the, the eggs and the life cycle. They're more active in the full moon. So you might have to wait a few full moons to notice a real difference. Some people, um, six months is a sweet spot. Some people, honestly, it's a year plus, depending on how sick they are. And some people have to work slowly towards the full doses of everything and cycle on and off the parasite cleanse to get the full benefits. So that would obviously slow down the process as well. So I'd say average three months for me, uh, I think four to six months was the sweet spot. But I have some clients still passing parasites on a regular basis and it's been a year plus. I have some questions here. Someone's asking, did I ever treat mold I'm guessing with prescription antifungals I didn't and I wouldn't have done anyway because I really feel like um, the herbal stuff can be much more effective and less side effects but there's a time and a place if someone's at the point where they actually tolerate medication better than herbs because that can happen especially with sensitivities people just do better with the pharmaceuticals because it's more targeted but um, I personally use natural antifungals. Uh, I can't remember specifically. I've used tons of products over time, but things like caprylic acid, oil of oregano, berberine, allicin, which is the extracts from garlic. They're some of the most common ones. There's a herb that you can also drink as a tea called powder arco, which is very antifungal and pretty effective for things like candida and mold overgrowth and you can develop candida overgrowth and a systemic yeast overgrowth after being exposed to mold. So you always have to think back to the root cause. So if you're currently dealing with symptoms of candida, it's good knowing that. And maybe your test has showed it, but if you just clear the yeast and do a round of antifungals and an anti-candida diet for a couple of months, but don't actually look back as to why that might have happened in the first place, it's very likely going to come back. You also need to strengthen the immune system at the same time because in an ideal world, the healthy immune system should keep candida and yeast in check just on its own. You don't really have to do much to it. So if you've killed off all the yeast, or you can't get rid of it completely, but really reduce the levels of yeast with herbs, but your immune system's still rock bottom because you're stressed out and you have other environmental toxins that you haven't, you haven't cleared, then it's just going to come back and then you'll just be in a vicious cycle. But um, I didn't jump to antifungals right away even that usually comes after a few months and only if needed some people are absolutely fine after just getting out of the moldy environment and remediating or remediating doing some binders getting the detox pathways open sometimes you don't need to go to the antifungals but in my case because I was living there for like over 20 years I definitely did that because I had signs and symptoms of candida overgrowth and my labs were showing it I also addressed the nasal microbiome that's an important point as well because sometimes the um, microbiome of the nose can be colonized with bacteria bad bacteria and fungus from the the exposure that you've been breathing in for however long that was uh, i have another question here from stories why would i feel a million times better much more energy and better mood in the second half of my cycle that's great so that's how it should be you should feel good pretty much all the time anyway but that's potentially telling me you have a, um, a good progesterone production. And after ovulation, you're noticing a big shift. It can also improve your thyroid function and your um, metabolic rate during that time. 
as well. So maybe the first half you're a little bit sluggish, you're a bit, little bit depleted, and that progesterone boost gives you another like lease lease on life and you're just feeling so much better during that time that would be my top because that's really the only thing that shifts um leading up to the leading up to the period or it could be that you have low hormone levels in general like low estrogen and low androgens but then when you ovulate you get a boost of hormones so you come into a normal range maybe that's worth looking into as well um so rachel uh, last couple of questions here Rachel asked do I work with international clients I'm in Canada yeah I am really sorry about the abrupt ending here if you were watching live on Instagram when I was recording you probably realized that my zoom stopped recording right at the end because my my laptop ran out of um disk space so that was fun I had a bit of a panic there but managed to delete a ton of stuff and save this video thank god but mercury is currently in retrograde and yeah it affects technology and things like that so maybe that is the explanation but i managed to save it thank you universe so yeah sorry for the abrupt ending hope you enjoyed it my final question that i had was just on if i work with clients online yes i do and if i see clients worldwide and the answer is yes i have clients all over the world but if anyone's ever unsure or had any questions you can always send me a dm or an email and i do offer the enrollment calls as well so if you wanted to chat a little bit further which i would recommend before signing up because i want to make sure that it's a good fit for me to work with you as well and that we kind of get on that's important so yeah i hope you enjoyed this episode and next week will be another guest interview so i hope you enjoy that one i really hope you enjoyed this episode if you did and you would love a free copy of my hormone friendly recipes guide please leave me a rating and review and i will email you a copy as a thank you gift all you need to do is screenshot your rating and review and send it to me at hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. This guide contains delicious gluten, dairy, grain and refined sugar-free recipes and all the meals contain specific hormone superfoods. Don't worry, there are no boring salad recipes included. Come and say hi over on Instagram at Viva Natural Health as I share a ton of free content every day and you can get to know more about me and how I stay hormonally healthy. If you haven't already, check out my website, vivanaturalhealth.co.uk, for my blog and many free guides which cover everything from clearing acne to gut health and hair loss. If you're ready to identify and address the root causes of your hormonal issues, whether that's acne, PMS, PCOS, hair loss or problematic periods, take that first step today and apply for an enrolment call on my website. We'll use this call to discuss the steps that you need to take in order to achieve hormonal harmony and how I could help you get there. See you back here next week for another episode.